Hey, this is Eric Gentry. I'm one of the ministers at Highland Church of Christ, and I'm really delighted to get to teach Bridge Builders this morning. If you are listening to this and you don't go to Highland, I'd love to invite you to come sometime and come to worship with us and come to the Bridge Builder Young Adult class. We'd love to have you there. Today, I can continue part two in our Galatians series on Galatians chapter two. Hope you enjoy. All right, Galatians two. All right, let me hand out this... uh, Little handout here. We hand those out on that side. We hand these out on this side. Just pass them around. So this is just a, a copy of Galatians two fifteen to twenty one that I'm, we're passing out here. I open up my Bible. All right, Galatians 2. So I was reading this article, and um, it's, it's not a magazine I typically read, Forbes, but um, kind of above my pay grade. But I happened to cro- across this article that was really interesting. And the article is about the silo mentality. So uh, has anybody ever heard of that before, the silo mentality? So it's like a business organizational concept. Um, so... So the idea is that in a business, that different parts of the organization create silos. And at times, those silos, so you might have like the uh, communication department, you got a marketing department, sales, I don't know, I don't know what all the departments are. But um, essentially, when, when the silo mentality is going on, each of these silos or departments in the organization doesn't want to talk to the other departments in the organization. So some of you are shaking your heads like you know, you've experienced this maybe. And, and so you know maybe the doctors don't want to talk to the nurses or the marketing people don't want to talk to the salespeople or, or whatever the case may be. And so each, each entity is trying to do their own thing, kind of do the best of their ability, but what it creates in the, in the organization is this lack of efficiency, decreasing morale. It contributes to what they call the demise of productivity in, in the Forbes article. And so I was thinking about that article before I read Galatians 2 in preparation for this class, and I think what's happening in Galatians 2, if you've got your Bible open there, you kind of chart through the first verses of that. Paul's talking about going to Jerusalem to have a conversation with some leaders in the early church who happened to be Jewish, and one of the, the problems that's kind of precipitating his journey there is some uh, changes in their stances towards Gentiles potentially he thinks and, and he thinks this because at the church in Galatia it seems like there's been an influx of people from the outside who are probably Jewish or have Jewish connections who want these Gentile Christians in Galatia to do certain things eat certain foods be circumcised stuff like that and so um, instead of that or, or sorry let me, let me back up there but he runs also into Peter and the problem is with Peter who's one of the leaders in the early church is that Peter formerly was associating with Gentiles, even though he's a Jew, and he would eat with them, which is the big taboo if you're Jewish to eat with Gentiles, but he was convinced that those food laws didn't matter anymore. He would eat with them. But apparently when these Jewish people came in to the church in Galatia, they influenced Peter, and so that now he, he won't eat with them anymore. He's kind of 
he's kind of stepped back. And so what, in some ways you might say that Peter's kind of living this siloed life. That what he does over here with his Jewish friends is different than what he does over here with his Gentile friends. Are you following? He kind of has two standards. So we, we would sometimes call this like duplicity or hypocrisy or something, right? You're, you're one way over here, you're another way over here. And that's what's ticking Paul off. Galatians is by far his most angry letter, his, his most fiery letter. So he is really mad because Peter is living a siloed life. What, what happens in organizations sometimes is happening in Peter's life. So he's one way over here with the Jews, he's another way with the Gentiles, and he can't stand that. Paul can't stand that. All right, so, I mean, y'all have probably seen people living the siloed life before. Anybody seen that around? You think of examples, maybe in the media, maybe your friends. You've probably seen that. Okay, so Paul writes Galatians, and specifically I think Galatians 2, as, in my opinion, a, a prescription for the sickness of the siloed life. So if you go to the doctor and you're sick, they're going to give you a prescription. And in this case, if the sickness is being siloed, being one way in one context and another way in another, among different people, then the prescription is what he's going to say in Galatians 2. And what he says is faith. Faith is the prescription. Did y'all ever watch The Princess Bride? Have you ever seen that? Uh, you know Inigo Montoya? And hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. Well, there's the little guy in Princess Bride. Uh, I forget his, his name. The kind of weaselly guy that's in charge of Inigo Montoya and, the, and Andre the Giant. You remember, anybody remember his name? What is it? Finizzi? Is that what it is? That does sound right. Fazzini. Fazzini. Yeah, Fazzini. Yeah, so Fazzini, remember uh, when the Dread, the Dread Pirate, Dread Scott, what is it? Dread Pirate Roberts. Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a while since I've seen my Princess Bride. But he starts following them when they're in the ship and they've stolen to kidnap the princess. And he keeps saying over and over, he looks at the, the boat gaining on them. And what does he say? He keeps saying the same word. Inconceivable, right? And eventually he keeps saying that. And what he means to be saying is impossible, but he's saying inconceivable. And so Inigo Montoya, remember what he says? He says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Right? I do not think it means what you think it means. How about an Inigo Montoya meme for class today? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's what's happening when we say faith. That, um, and we say faith is the prescription for a siloed life. But it's possible we're all using that same word, faith, but it does not mean what you think it means. Right. Or it doesn't mean what I think it means, even though I'm, I'm using it, assuming we all think the same thing about that word. So here's what we've got. You've, you should have in your hand a little half sheet of paper, which is Galatians. Let's see, did anybody not get that? Some of you came in later. There's some over there. Brett, why don't you grab yourself one of those? If you didn't get one, anybody not get one? Over there? Right there? Great. Verses. Thanks. So here's what I want you to do. Take two minutes and read that Galatians 2, 15 to 21. Okay. Read it. And this, I want you to finish this sentence for me when you're done reading it. We are justified or declared righteous. Depends on the translation you're looking at there. We are justified or declared righteous by blank. We are justified or declared righteous by blank. Okay. So take two minutes and read through that.
take 30 more seconds to finish reading that. So, if, if you read out of your own Bible, don't answer yet. If you read off the sheet of paper, then, because we're going to look at a difference here among those. So, if you're on this side of the room, and you, you read that Galatians, I think you read it out of the NIV, is that right? Okay, so how would you answer that question? Uh, or how would you finish that sentence? We are justified, declared righteous by what? Faith what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. So over here on the NIV side, we've got faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. So over here on this side, you read out of what's called the Kingdom New Testament, which is a guy named N.T. Wright put that together. If you were going to answer that question, fill in the end of the... I keep saying answer that question. Finish the sentence. How would you finish it? We are justified, declared righteous by what? By what? Yeah, the Messiah's faithfulness. So... We'll say the faith of J.C., right? The Messiah's faithfulness, if you read that version. Okay, so this is a major theological conversation going on right now. And we're not going to parse it all out, but um, you can see that reading the same passage in two different versions can lead you to two really different places. And it kind of sheds a light on this problem that we're talking about with uh, Inigo Montoya. I almost said Zini. With Inigo Montoya, that faith, we may be, we, we can both be using that same word and we can mean very different things. Okay? And so let's, we're going to kind of explore that. So, uh, how are we doing on time here? I was on a, back in college, I was on a trip one time, road trip with buddies. And so, you know, several of my buddies were from the Bible department, several weren't from the Bible department. Uh, you can probably guess which ones were cooler and which ones were less cool. And, um, so we were traveling along on this road trip. I think we were going to like a swimming hole in San Angelo or something like that. And so the car is full of guys. Three of us are studying Bible and the other three are not. Okay. And so I can remember one of my buddies started to ask questions because I think those other three were thinking, you know, like we're in the car with these Bible majors. And so surely they have all the answers to all of our Bible questions, which is not true then. It's not true now. But he starts kind of like firing away at these questions. And one of the questions that really hung him up was, you know, if God created everything, who created God? Right? So, so how, how could we say that God doesn't have like a, a start? Which is kind of hard to wrap your mind around, right? Like how, how does he not have a start? And so, you know, we didn't have a really good answer. And in fact, a lot of smart people have thought about that question over the centuries. Like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, like all these kind of famous people in the church have tried to answer that question. What most people who think about that say is say that that's act that problem is actually good evidence that God exists because if you think about dominoes so yeah, you've got this row of dominoes here and for those dominoes to fall over something has to to knock that first domino over right there has to be some force that starts the chain reaction of dominoes and and that that force they call the unmoved mover, right? Okay, does that make sense? That something starts the chain, but there was no thing starting that something. Some, you know, in this case, that's you, maybe. 
you go up and you flick that chain. And they say if you think about the way that time works and the way the world works, it, it would actually make sense that if there was a creation, that something without a starting point started it. The unmoved mover. Somebody started that chain of react that chain reaction. And so I shared that with my friend, and he was as convinced as y'all are, right? Like, oh, well, I don't know if that, that that's really that helpful, right? And, uh, and so then he was really frustrated because I remember him saying, like, why are you paying all this money to go to school if you don't have all the answers to our questions about the Bible? Which I didn't have a good answer for that either. Uh, I'm still paying for that school. But think, think with me for a moment about my friend's question and where it comes from. So as he kind of shared, questions like that created faith crises for him. Similar questions that he'd ask sometimes. Because for him, you know, faith was knowing and having confidence in this kind of host of things about Jesus, about God. And if there were things he did not know or couldn't explain, then therefore it challenged his faith. Or it seemed like his faith wasn't strong. It was it had cracks in it, fissures. And he then thought, as he kind of shared later in the trip, that he was concerned because those cracks in his faith, he believed, uh, may jeopardize his salvation. Because if, if we're saved by our faith in GC, in JC, sorry, in Jesus Christ, and our faith is our confidence about all the, the questions about Jesus, our ability to answer all those questions right, a lack of confidence thereof, or, or kind of cracks in that faith, does that mean we're not saved, not declared righteous, not justified? And there's a little bit of difference between justified and saved, but they're, they're on the same path. Okay, so what, what is faith then? I mean, how, how would you answer that question? What would you say is faith? Uh, turn to the person next to you and take 30 seconds and answer that. Okay. All right. So let's look at Galatians 2 there. Let's look at Galatians 2. I, you know, I, I'd be interested in some of the answers we got, but for, for time's sake, we're going to just press on. This is Galatians 2, 15 to 21, and this is out of the Kingdom New Testament, which translates it, the faith of Jesus Christ, or the Messiah's faithfulness. So this side of the room read this version already. Let's take a look at it, and then we're going to keep answering this question. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners... Uh, Sorry, that's, not, that's actually finishing a sentence. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law. That's being justified, being declared right in good standing with God. You're righteous. You're right. But through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. So the faith of Jesus Christ. That's why we too believed in the Messiah, Jesus, so that we might be declared righteous on the basis of the Messiah's faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness and not on the basis of works of Jewish law. On that basis, you see, no creature will be declared righteous. Well then, if in seeking to be declared righteous in the Messiah, we ourselves are found to be sinners, does that make the Messiah an agent of sin? Certainly not. If I build up once, once more the things which I tore down, I demonstrate I'm a lawbreaker. Let me explain it like this. 
through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive, but it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside God's grace. If righteousness comes through the law, then the Messiah died for nothing. Okay, so here's, here's that question again. What is faith? So now we've turned it and we've said maybe it's not our faith that saves us. Maybe it's the faith of Jesus Christ. But if we're still thinking about faith as what you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Let me explain it like this. Um, how many of you have been baptized? Maybe baptized, yeah. Baptism is when we give our life to Jesus, when we say, I believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ. We're baptized in water. So should you be baptized more than once? What do you think about that? Should you be baptized more than once? So my friend, one of those friends in that car trip that night, he was baptized like six times, and uh, which was kind of an average at his church, right? There were some who were baptized even more than that. And... Um, the reason for him was when he would come to know something new about Christ or be able to say with confidence, I believe this about Christ, it seemed to him to call into question his previous baptism, as though that baptism were based on an incomplete faith, and so it didn't count. You following? So he, he needed to redo it because now it surely would count. And then the problem is you, you learn something else. So... Part of, part of like the, the, the issue there is that we don't baptize infants, right, in churches of Christ typically. And that's because we believe that baptism should be a decision a believer makes for themselves. So they should be able to, to kind of ration that out. The, the kind of the bad side of that is that we lean really heavily into that rationing side, right, the rationale. We can kind of like, you know, privilege those who know the most. And so getting ready for baptism is about knowing all you can about Christ. And when you finally know enough, then you're ready. Right? You following? You following? Does that make sense? Which can communicate faith is knowing enough. Knowing enough. Uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense then if we shift that to Jesus to say that Jesus saves us because he knows everything there is to know about God. Well, of course he does, right? He's God. <laughs> so that's not like a good solution to the problem. And so this passage doesn't make a lot of sense if we say that's what faith means. So um, turn to, uh, we're in a dilemma here, so we need help figuring this out. So turn to Romans 3 if you have a Bible. Romans 3, 21 to 26. I've got it on the back of the screen. Here. So most people think that, and in many ways, Romans is just like a, let me let me put it like this. Galatians is the Cliff Notes version of Romans. Okay. Anybody read Cliff Notes around school? Do they still make Cliff Notes? Is that still a thing? Spark, Spark Notes now? You probably get it all online. But I remember you have to go to Barnes and Noble the night before and find that book there on the rack of like popular school reading books and you find what was the Scarlet Letter or of Mice and Men or something like that. Um, so anyways, Galatians, most people say, is kind of like the Cliff Notes version of Romans. It's, it's making much the same argument, but abbreviated. And one of those similarities is between the passage we just read, Galatians 2, 15 to 21, and Romans 3, 21 to 26, which is behind me. So 
Uh, what does this tell us about the faith of Jesus? So I think this is the NIV, but now apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So it's, it's the same problem. He's talking about the, the issues with the law versus the faith of Jesus or our faith. So the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe. So this is the NIV's translation. It's the same problem with words, though, here. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Um, okay, if I, you know, this, the, this passage has that same translation problem that, it, you know, so I don't, you know, I, I don't typically like to be like, in the Greek it says this because I didn't particularly enjoy Greek and I, I don't think that most of y'all would. Uh, it just, the more you study it, I think the less fun it is. But this is one of those things about the Greek language that this um, word in can mean in or of. Right? It can mean either. It can mean either of them. And so you do have to kind of interpret it by context. So look at this passage right there. There's a couple times where it says the faith of Jesus. So if I take those out of this passage, so this is reading in the context, you just kind of eliminate faith of Jesus. You eliminate that from Read it to yourself quietly and ask who's doing the heavy lifting in this passage. Is it me or is it God through Christ? Who's doing the heavy lifting? Okay, who do you think? Who's doing the heavy lifting in this passage? Yeah, Jesus, right? God. All the activity is God's in this passage. And so, you know, when you talk about language of faith in Jesus Christ, I think for Paul, the problem with that translation is that it is setting up a very similar scenario to the law, the previous scenario under which, the previous context under which Jews were living, right? Okay, it is something you do. You do the heavy lifting, and you're saved. Whereas if you read the context around both these passages, Galatians and Romans, what's happening is God, through Jesus Christ, is doing the work. He's doing the work that the law couldn't accomplish. And so our faith has got to mean, it's got to mean something else. So this would be like, let me try to make sense of this. Um, so suppose that we all took this test. And so I was going to have us do this test, but we don't have enough time. I took the test. It was a, a Washington Post Bible knowledge test. In the Washington Post, I don't know why I was there. It was 10 questions. I only got eight right. Okay, uh, Washington Post. So kind of embarrassing. We were going to do it all so that you would be more embarrassed. But um, we were going to do it all together. But we don't have time to do it. So suppose that we all took this test. And we're back in school. We take this test. And I'm sitting up here. I'm the teacher. You all you know, come in and turn in your test. And... I said, you know, thanks very much for taking this test, but I'm not going to give you your grade. I'm going to give you Johnny's grade on the test. And uh, you, you, you probably pause and be like, hmm, that's curious. You know, if Johnny's smart, you'd be like, great. 
you know, give me Johnny's grade on the test. If Johnny's kind of average, you'd be like, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. But turns out in this case, Johnny's really smart. And I think that's, that's similar to this difference between the faith in Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ. But if you accept that what he's trying to say is we're saved by the faith of Jesus Christ, then it's like coming to the end, turning in your test, and getting Jesus' grade on it. You know, like he kind of just says, ah, uh, you got to see, I'm just going to give you an A. You're going to get Jesus' grade on your test. I think that's what this passage is saying. But here's the problem. So we still haven't defined faith there. We, we might kind of accept that it's, it's Jesus' faith that saves us, but we haven't defined it yet, except kind of our, our wrestling with, does faith mean what I know? Uh, so the other day I was watching this spy movie and um, when Lindsay was gone she doesn't like spy movies but I do and um, in the movie there's this guy who's trying to bring down the Russians and uh, which is just a really timely thing now right and uh, this was actually a while back when I watched this but it's really timely now he's trying to bring down the Russians and he's supposed to report back to headquarters at a certain time and he doesn't report back. And so everybody at headquarters thinks that he's gone rogue, right? He's, the Russians have got him now. He's, he's turned his back on us. He's not doing what he was supposed to do, right? He's, he's gone rogue. The problem is when you're out spying on people, I presume you can't just like stop and send a text like, hey, still spying on the Russians, be home soon, right? Like you, you, know, you just kind of, there's gotta be this trust element going on and so eventually you know the people back at headquarters kind of decide that he hasn't he hasn't gone rogue that he's still being obedient to the mission obedience to the mission and I, th I actually think that that's probably the best definition of faith obedience to the mission Um, you know, if, if God is the director at headquarters, it's like Jesus is still saying, yes, sir, to God. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm going to keep doing it. Yes, sir. Okay, so Paul makes that connection in Romans, which, like I said, is, is the long version of Galatians. So Paul, in, in Romans 1.5, those actually those two words go together. Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. In Romans 1.17, he says the righteous will live by faith. So in that, in that scenario or in that verse, faith isn't something you, you just kind of like claim or something you know. It's this way you're living, right? You follow that? Question about that? And then in Romans 5.18-19, he, he makes that parallel again. He says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, he's talking about Adam's sin in the garden. So also one righteous act resulted in justification or being declared righteous and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. So this is like a math problem. So, uh, or I don't know if this is what this is, geometry, no, I guess it's algebra. Let's see. So you remember back in math when you had, if, um, does anybody teach math in here? We don't have any math teachers, right? Okay, that makes me feel better. All right, so remember back in algebra, you'd have if A equals B and B equals C, then what? 
A equals C, right? Are you following? Does that make sense? That's pretty, pretty basic. Anybody need me to explain that further? All right. So in this, in this scenario, we've got Jesus' um, faithfulness, faith, in Romans 3 and in Galatians 2, Jesus' faith equals our justification. Or God declaring us righteous. Okay? And then here we've got Jesus' obedience in Romans 5 equaling our justification. So which two things should equal each other? Faith and obedience. Faith equaling the obedience of Jesus. Are you following? Does that make sense? So where is that expressed really clearly? It's a really famous passage. You, all, you probably all know it by heart. It's from Paul. It's in Philippians 2. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And so Jesus is glorified because of his faithful obedience. Obedience. He's, he's saying... Yes, sir, to God. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He's doing the mission of God. Okay. Um, you have any questions about that before I, I move towards the conclusion here? Any questions about that? Um, have y'all... There's this short story by uh, William Sidney Porter called The Last Leaf. Have you ever heard this story, The Last Leaf? Has anybody heard this story? Uh, my dad, we used to get Reader's Digest in my home. Did anybody else's, did your parents get Reader's Digest? Yeah. And uh, my my dad would just mine Reader's Digest for sermon illustrations. It was great because it had these like, you know, 500 word little s stories that had made you feel really good. Kind of like chicken soup for the soul. If you're, we also got a lot of those. My mom loved those. And uh, the story of The Last Leaf by William Sidney Porter, uh, it's, it's, it's set in New York City. It's in the 1920s. It's cold outside. It's the wintertime. Everybody's kind of cooped up inside. And this pneumonia outbreak kind of spreading across the city. And um, this, these two sisters, I think, what are their names? Jonesy and Sue. They live together in this little cramped apartment. And Jonesy gets really sick, and she's dying. And so Sue comes in one day, and she hears Jonesy counting down. She's saying 12, 11. 10. And she said, what are you doing? And she and Jonesy says that she's looking out the window. There we go. She's looking out the window and there's this vine with leaves on it. Those are leaves. They kind of look like light bulbs though. Uh, those are leaves. And so she's looking out and she sees this vine with leaves. And of course it's winter time and so the leaves are falling off. Falling off the vine. And she's counting down how many are left. And so she says, you know, 12, uh, 11. Okay, so she's counting down. And she tells her sister, when the last leaf falls, I'm going to die. I don't have any more energy. I'm going to die. And so at the same time, living underneath them is this guy and his name, what is his name? Mr. Berman. 
he's this old artist who moved to New York City a long time ago to paint his masterpiece and become really famous. And he never, he never could paint that picture. He just never could kind of figure out what that masterpiece was supposed to be. So this blank canvas just sits in the corner of his apartment his whole life. And he runs into Sue, Jonesy's sister, that day as she's leaving. And she tells him about the vine situation. And they shake their heads because they both know that surely tonight it's getting so cold and icy outside that last leaf's going to fall. And so the next day they wake up, though, and the leaf is there. The leaf's still there. And Jonesy kind of rallies her strength, and she gets a little bit better. And the next day she's a little bit better. You know where this story's going, don't you? And so the doctor comes, and he tells, he tells Jonesy, you're going to make it. You're going to be just fine. And then he says, but I've got to go check on this guy downstairs, Mr. Berman, because he's, he is really sick. He was out late. We found him covered in ice and cold, and it was really bad. And he's, he's got pneumonia really bad, and he's going to die. He's old. He's not going to make it. And so he goes to check on him, and he comes. Sue then goes to check on Mr. Berman, too. And she comes in, and she tells her sister, she says, I've got something to tell you. Mr. Berman died of pneumonia the day at the hospital, and he was ill only two days. The janitor found him in the morning of the first day in his room downstairs, helpless with pain. His shoes and clothing were wet through and icy cold, and they couldn't imagine where he'd been on such a wonderful, dread, wonderfully dreadful night. And then they found a lantern still lighted and a ladder that he dragged from his place and scattered some brushes and a palette with green and yellow colors mixed on it and look out the window dear at that last ivy leaf on the wall didn't you wonder why it never fluttered or moved as the wind blew ah darling it's berman's masterpiece he painted it there the night that last leaf fell and this is a really great story right when you read it in reader's digest you're crying when you read it right because it's reader's digest but it is this great story that the hard work of our salvation of our being rescued from our lousy condition jesus does it's sacrifice to his own self he he goes out in the night to paint that last leaf he gives himself on the cross and that is the demonstration of what faithfulness means okay it's that kind of sacrifice on our behalf so that's what paul says in galatians 2 and we're going to wrap up here that's what he says in galatians 2 here in galatians 2 15 to 21 if if the problem is that people like peter are living a siloed life that they're one way among some people and another way among other people uh the 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 reason um, that they're doing that is because ego still exists inside. Okay, the reason Peter would act one way among one group and another way among another group, or the reason some Jews would come in and try to force the Gentiles to do something they think makes them better, is because you think you are better, right? or else you wouldn't expect that of somebody else. And the reason you think you're better is because you, you think it's your faith that's saving you. Sorry, your faith that's saving you. And Paul's trying to turn that on its head and say, it's not your faith that's saving you. Okay? It's the obedience of Jesus that saves you to God. Okay? Jesus does the hard work on your behalf. And if you realize that, then what that does, I mean, if that really sinks into your heart, what it does is blow up the ego. Because you realize you are lousy as they come. You're lousy as they come. And that's what he says in verse 20. He says, you die to yourself. I am, however, alive somehow because it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. That Jesus comes in and he moves in to that ego place. And he fills you in a very different way. And so what that should do is destroy the silos. You should become the same 
everywhere because you're equally in need of God's grace everywhere, just like everyone is in equally in need of that grace. So you would stop saying things like, ego leads us to say things like, pray as if everything depended on God, but work as if everything depended on yourself. You ever heard something like that? Or God saves those who save themselves. You've heard something like that, right? But Paul spends Romans 1 through 3 and Galatians 1 and 2 saying, Pagans, Jews, Gentiles are in the same state before God. They are lousy and deserving of condemnation. But Jesus was so obedient to God that he declares you righteous when you can't declare that for yourself. And so suddenly, if we're all equally in need of God's grace, then we treat each other, okay, as equals, as loving equals. And that egocentrism moves out and we become what theologians would call Christocentric. Christ moves into the middle. And a truly Christocentric life has no need of silos. You don't need that anymore. Okay, that's all we've got. I'm going to pray. Um, let me say, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Or let me pause this. I'm going to pause the, I'm going to stop the really um, popular podcast right now.